So when the initial, you know, hey, you got cancer is pretty bad, you're like, eh, yeah, that kind of sucks, but, you know, we'll see what we do. When he says, you need to get your affairs together, what's your reaction then? It was really weird. But I remember I got used to the idea really fast. Used to the idea of my time yeah, is short? Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, It wasn't like you would think. Like, mm. at least for me, it wasn't sad. I mean, it was a little sad, but it made me realize that Maybe this sounds crazy, but you don't realize how much uh, like stress and pressure you put on yourself, just normal day-to-day -day things, until you get news like that, and all that stuff doesn't matter anymore. Mm. Like how just free and good you feel. That was Aaron Shepard, and this is the Journey Through Life podcast. This episode is going to be entitled, Think, Don't Just React. And I think as we go through this story with Aaron, we can really see how that is a motto or a mantra that he really lives by in his life. He always thinks things through and strives not to overreact in lots of pretty stressful and other real situations. Now, I'm super excited. This is episode 100 of the No and Do slash Journey Through Life podcast. It's been quite a the ride, and I'm really, really enjoying it. And I'm grateful for those who have listened to some or all of the 100 episodes. One of the really cool things about this is that uh, over the last 15 or so episodes, I've had the opportunity to sit down and talk with some really interesting people. Now, these are people who are just your ordinary run-of-the-mill people when you look at them. But when you talk to them, you learn that there's some real stories. And that's why the tagline of the Journey Through Life podcast is Ordinary People with Extraordinary Stories. Now, this episode, as you will soon hear, if you didn't already catch it in the little intro, it was recorded in my garage. Uh, he was in town and we wanted to get this done and we had like nine kids in the house and just couldn't find a quiet room. So we recorded in the garage. So it's a little bit echoey, but besides that, the story is fantastic. Now, a little bit of housekeeping uh, to follow the Journey Through Life podcast. You can look us up on Facebook or on Instagram. Our handle is at JTL podcast. Look us up, follow us, like us. Enjoy that. Also, you can look at uh, look us up on the website, www.jtlpod.com. And if you have a story to share or you know somebody that has a story that uh, would be a fantastic listen, please reach out to me. You can contact me through the website, through Facebook or Instagram, or you can email me at thejtlpodcast at gmail.com. Also, at the end of this episode, I'm doing another in their own words thing, another story written by my grandfather who passed away now 13 or 14 years ago. So it's been a long time since I've heard his own words, and I am grateful to be able to read these stories. Same thing goes with um, anything you have from a relative who has passed on. If they have written a story from their life that you think would be something that would be funny or meaningful or just entertaining, I would love to read that at the end of one of these Journey Through Life um, episodes. So send those my way in the same ways that you would reach out to me with a potential person to have a conversation with. Now let's talk about a life untold. I'm super excited to let you know of a relationship that the Journey Through Life podcast has recently formed with a great company that fits perfectly with the theme of Journey Through Life. 
A Life Untold is that company. And A Life Untold helps absolutely anyone turn their life story into a beautifully designed hardcover book. Their process is designed to be easy for everyone. All you have to do is complete an interview with thought-provoking questions about your life. You can either do that online or get one of their biographers to interview you live over the phone. Now, my mom has started doing this. She uh, got A Life Untold and is starting to go through the interview process. And I asked her yesterday how that was going, and she said she was having such a good time and that it was really making her think about her life and the different things that she's done and experienced and what she wants to leave for her posterity. And I, for one, am really excited to also see that story in that hardbound book when it is finished. So after the interview is complete, A Life Untold takes over and designs, prints, and delivers that life story as a hardcover book to your door. It makes for a great gift to a loved one in your life and will be a great or will be a great project to do on your own. Either way, this life story, bound in a printed book, is something that your family will treasure for generations. Now, I'm super grateful to announce that listeners of the Journey Through Life podcast will save 10% on all orders by using the code JUSTIN at checkout. That's Justin, J-U-S-T-I-N. And you can find all the details on their website at www.alifeuntold.com. You can also see them by going to www.jtlpod.com. Now remember to use the promo code Justin when checking out at alifeuntold.com to save 10%. Now on to this episode, Think, Don't Just React, a conversation with Aaron Shepard. So, so Aaron, you and I know each other a little bit over the last yeah. few years and everything, but I want to get your story. Where where do you okay. come from? Tell me about um, a little bit about your early days in life. Like where were you born? As far back and, as I remember. Yeah, and some of your first and most um, uh, meaningful early memories. Let's see. I remember being five or six years old. It was about as far back as I remember. And uh, I remember when I was that age, I loved to sneak up on and catch wild animals. Really? So what kinds of wild animals? Uh, We had a lot of, um, like, stray cats around. And I remember I would sneak, just, I'd spend hours sneaking up on a cat just to to grab it. And these are like feral cats. Oh, yeah. They're usually not friendly that would come up to you and let you pet them and stuff. Yeah, they would run. And and I remember getting bit and scratched a lot when I would catch them. But my favorite thing to catch was birds. Mm. I would sneak up on, and I caught a robin. But the the best thing I ever caught was a crow. Really? Yeah, I think I was six, and I caught a crow. So tell, tell me about that process of sneaking up on a crow and catching a crow. Well, I don't remember it that well. My, my older brother remembers me, you know, having a crow, like, you know, freaking <laughs> out a crow. And it, and it didn't last long. I, I let it go pretty fast but <laughs> it was on a f- uh an old wooden fence that was part of the corrals where we used to have a we had a milk cow when i was growing up and i remember just just walking up the edge of this fence just a couple inches at a time and i only had maybe 50 feet to cover and i don't remember it that well other than i remember holding a big old crow freaking out in my little <laughs> tiny <laughs> 
I got a crow. Now what do I do with it? Yeah, well, I didn't even know it was a crow at uh-huh. the time. And my brother had to tell me. It was just a big black bird. <laughs> it's a big black bird, and I wanted to catch it. But, you know, when I got older, we had some neighbor kids we played with. We were riding bikes a lot. So where, where, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Well, I was born into a house that uh, it sat right where my parents' house sits now. In Rigby, Idaho area. Yeah, in Rigby, mm-hmm. Idaho there, yeah. Out, uh, out in farming country. But I grew up in a, it was a trailer house that sat right where my parents' house sits. Mm. Like most people, they don't believe me, but I grew up really poor. I mean, there was four, there was five of us kids, and I shared a bedroom, like a tiny bedroom, with three of my brothers. So there's four of us in this wow. bedroom. And then you've got one sister, I take it? Yep. I have who had her sister. own bedroom? Yeah, she had her own room. To be honest, though, it was fun, though. Like, I, I don't remember it as sucking. Right. Yeah, it was, it was fun. It's one of those, we grew up poor, but I didn't know it. I didn't really mm-hmm. get it. Yeah, there was two bunk beds in there with just, just shoulder room in between them. And I remember my, my mom was always having to yell at us because we were in there just laughing and jumping from bed to bed. Yeah, wrestling yeah, just, and whatever just else. Just being loud and obnoxious, like, well, huh. like my kids do today. But so, who is maybe the relative that you remember as a youth? Maybe the oldest relative you remember as a youth? Maybe a grandfather, grandmother, great uncle, great grandfather, something like that that had that you remember an experience with. Well, the oldest relative that I remember that I had any you know much contact with would have been my my dad's father my my grandpa and he was a really quiet guy Hmm. he didn't say a whole lot he was uh my dad says that's where i get my uh patience Hmm. he's a very patient man Mm -hmm. yeah yeah what did he do he farmed yeah he's a farmer yeah he farmed that's what got my my dad though my dad's exactly the opposite my dad's really like really pushy and, mm-hmm. and and like zero patience and like I don't know how he functions. I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't live that way. Yeah, but he pretty much he took over the farm like the operation of the farm when he was in his twenties because my grandpa was real patient and easygoing and my uh-huh. dad was real pushy. So my dad just <laughs> took over and said, "This my is the dad way just said, run, huh? you're working for me now." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny, and it's the same land that uh, your dad has today. And- mm-hmm. Has that farm been sold or purchased, expanded on over the years, or is it the same land that's been there for a couple of generations? It got split up one time. My my dad's brother farmed with him for a few years, and my grandpa gave him some land, mm-hmm. and that got split off from the the main part of the farm. But my dad's bought a few pieces of ground in the last few years. He's Added bought. To, yeah. Are they like adjoining, or is it? No, separate stuff. No, it's it's all a few miles away, but it's mm-hmm. it's nice stuff along the river. Mm-hmm. Right along the Snake River there, huh? Mm-hmm. So what kind of memories do you have growing up living right on the, the river? What types of things did you guys do out there? We used to just go back and explore. I mean, we're, we'd ride our, our pedal bikes back the, the half mile back to the river, and we'd leave our bikes on the road and just go. I don't know if you've been back there, but there's there's a few hundred acres of just thick brush and you know, cricks and springs. And mm-hmm. I remember going back with the, the, we had some neighbor kids that moved in and just going back there and exploring. Mm-hmm. But that didn't last very long. About the time I, 
I think I was when I was about ten years old. My dad put me to work moving pipe. Oh yeah, yeah. So there no wasn't much. Play. It's there wasn't out, much huh? time for playing after that. Huh. What, what were your thoughts when that when that day happened? When your dad said, "Okay, it's time to work." How did you take that initially? I was excited because I remember my my older brother. You know, you'd get up at four thirty in the morning and you'd go out in the fields and you'd move the sprinkler pipe and the potatoes and. You know, I remember looking up to my brother, and I, I wanted to go do that. So my dad said, all right, it's uh, this year. I was excited. Huh. And it, it wasn't that bad. There was five or six of us, and we, I can't remember. We'd, we'd pick a couple of the neighbor kids up, and, you know, my brother at the time was 12 or 13, and hmm. he was driving the pickup. And, nice. And we'd pick up a couple of neighbor kids and head to the field and go move the pipe and... Hmm. And that was doing potatoes. So when, since I've known you, it's always been, I think, barley back there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did that change from potatoes to whatever else maybe has been farmed on that land over the years? Um, well, I don't, know, I don't know exactly what changed, but back in the, the 80s and, and 90s, every farmer around grew at least some potatoes. Mm-hmm. It was just what they did. Right. But I, I think the potato prices, it just got too tight for a small farmer to, to make it on, you know, 100 acres of potatoes. You had to have several thousand acres, and you could make a living on potatoes. But something changed, and, and within just three or four years, there was no more potatoes being grown Wow, around where, you know, my house is. And everybody just went to, to grain of some sort, huh? Mm-hmm. Yep, that might, well, yeah, malting barley came around in the... Oh, somewhere in the mid-80s. And that might have been the reason that everyone just went to growing malting barley. Prices were good. and They were consistent. Mm -hmm. You know, you you knew ahead of time what your your crop was going to bring. I don't know. It was just a lot easier for most of the farmers around to do that. And now Idaho isn't the potato capital of the world anymore. (laughs) I understand that central Washington grows more potatoes than Idaho does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I think I'm fairly certain that Idaho is now the malting barley capital <laughs> of the world. <laughs> Lots of that growing over there. <laughs> yep. So how did being raised on a farm kind of affect your life going forward? What are some of the things that you experienced and brought you to who you <clears throat> are today that you attribute to farm life? I don't, I don't really know what the difference would have been because I don't, you know, it's the only life I ever knew, so I don't know you know, what would have been different about me if I would have grown up in, you know, in in different situation. But I imagine it's the same stuff everyone learns Mm -hmm. to, you know, I mean, most kids have, you know, chores or responsibilities around the house, but when they're younger and it was mostly just a lot of fun. Yeah. You didn't see it too much as work. (laughs) No, no, not, not when I was a kid. And my, my dad would make us work till six or seven at night and then we could, Go do something fun after that. What types of fun things did you do? Until we got, um, when we were kids, we, we, I just remember riding our pedal bikes everywhere and having fun like that. And like I said, we were poor, so all our fun was done just at home. Mm-hmm. But then again, we lived on, you know, you know, a couple hundred acres on the river, and so it was... It home was, was a big place. Yeah, yeah. I remember we'd, we'd play baseball in the backyard and... We had a trampoline, jump on the trampoline. Mm-hmm. What else? I don't know. It wasn't that exciting. We we didn't go on trips. 
But yeah. But was, your backyard was a trip. It was like yeah, a vacation. Yeah, we just had a lot of fun. We we had right. an old we had this old motorcycle that ran sometimes. We could get it <laughs> running. And I remember having a lot of fun with that old motorcycle. So I know that you've done a lot of dirt biking in your life. Tell me about mm-hmm. how that uh how you got into that and I mean, you're the fastest uh, dirt biker there is, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So tell me about that. <laughs> um, I didn't really get into dirt biking until I was a senior in high school. Really? No. No. When I was a 13, 14, my dad bought me this, you know, kind of an old crappy dirt bike that I had a lot of fun on. And then when I was probably 16, 17, I got kind of a nicer bike. And then when I was 16 years old, I started working at a motorcycle dealership. Mm. I'd kind of uh, I'd kind of just had enough of farming, and I didn't get along with my dad, and I told him, you know, I'm done with this. I'm, I'll see you later. I'm, right. And I went and got a, a job at a motorcycle dealership. When I, while I was working there, I, I bought a, a newer bike, and I had a younger brother that had a bike, and I don't know what possessed us to do this but there was a motorcycle race one weekend and we just went to it yeah and we both did really good like we'd never we'd never even rode on a motorcycle track before and you did pretty well huh yeah yeah we did i mean i if i remember right i ended up hurting myself i didn't even finish i crashed real bad and hurt my ankle but but it was uh i don't know it was a lot of fun we were both just hooked wow but yeah, after that, we were, I think we, my brother and I, we both bought us some nicer bikes and we were, we were racing, you know, going all over the state a couple times a month to go race. Just go racing. Were there, was there much prize money in that? Was there a reason for doing that other than just the fun and the excitement? There was no money in it for the riders. You, you had to pay 20 or $30 to enter and, and you know, if you did good, you got a trophy. <laughs> that's a trophy it. for you yeah that was it you know you got a trophy and then you got you know there was bragging rights you right can, right but it was it was mostly friendly we got to know most of the guys we raced against and are there any of those guys that you raced against when you were younger that uh that you still see around or still you know mm-hmm. communicate with that there was like a meaningful relationship built there oh yeah yeah there was a guy uh what was his name's Rhett that I remember meeting him like at our first or second race, and we raced with him for five or six years. We'd see him every race weekend, and and he still rides too. He still rides dirt bikes. That's cool. What kinds of things about him are? I don't know. Why? Why do you like the guy? Oh, he was just fairly normal guy. He, uh, you know, I well, I'd speak with him, and we were, had a lot in common, and mm-hmm. so it was easy talking to him and. And if I recall, he was our UPS driver that delivered at my house. Oh, really? Yeah. So I remember I knew him at the races, and one day I, I see him in a UPS uniform at my house. I'm like, what are you doing? What's up, Brett? <laughs> What's it look like I'm doing? <laughs> Did he know you lived there? Did he, was he coming in like... Uh, um, yeah, uh, he, he knew where I lived. That's funny. Yeah. So I wonder what his feelings were as he's coming up to the door. Huh, I'm coming up to Aaron's door in my brown shorts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, I think he still does that today, though. I think yeah. he's still driving the, the UPS truck. I think I know a few people that do that, and they yeah. must 
take care of their people pretty well because yeah. they seem to, you know, have families and homes and mm-hmm. nice vehicles. And What was maybe a semi-traumatic or painful memory that you recall from your youth that, that maybe an event that happened that made you change your path in one way or another? Hinge pin well, type moment. Let me think. Well, this goes... Kind of into the dirt biking. When I was when I was in high school, I got into uh, you know I didn't get into drugs or anything serious, but I liked to drink beer. Mm-hmm. Like it just tasted good. Yeah. And so I got into trouble a, a few times in high school. You know, like I I think I was 15 years old and I got a DUI. Mm. And you know I disappointed my parents and I remember church got really weird after that for a while. Cause oh yeah. <laughs> was it weird for you or was it weird? People started treating you differently. Yeah, Did you just yeah. see that people... people... Well, it wasn't so much that they... I don't know what they said behind my back, but they were like... Everyone was... It was more like everyone was super nice because they wanted to, you know, bring me back into the fold. And, mm-hmm. But it was obviously really fake. You know, from, oh. from my point of view, yeah. I was just like, just shut up. <laughs> Interesting. So how does that affect you today as you attend church and you do whatever, you know, there in church, you're you're showing up and doing your thing there. How does that affect you when you see others that maybe are walking a similar path that you walked when you were a youth? How do you react to them? Well, even then, I it's it's really hard because I still don't know what the answer is to get them out of... Like, for me, like, when I stopped with that stuff was when we got into the dirt biking and started getting more serious about racing. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I started getting more serious about being healthy and being, you know, fit because the 25-minute motocross race is it's tough beats you up pretty yeah good. yeah you've got to be in really good shape and, and you know the guys that aren't in shape because they'll they'll race with you or be fast for the first 10 minutes of the race and then they just kind of disappear hmm. and then a few laps later you, you're passing you're them again. Them yeah up. you know those are the guys that you know weren't in shape and so once i started thinking more about keeping my stuff in shape then you know that stuff just wasn't appealing anymore hmm. and so i mean i try if I see a kid struggling, I can, but I don't. I don't really know what to tell them to do. You know, you got to get into something that's gonna make you not want to do that type of stuff anymore. Right. Do you treat them differently than how you saw people or how you thought people were treating you as a kid? Well, I try to. I don't. I been through that. You. I don't treat it as a serious thing as a lot mm-hmm. of people around the community do. I just right. can kind of laugh at them because I, I know that chances are they're going to figure it out on their own and they're going to be just fine. So tell me about when you met Misa and how what, what eventually led to you guys getting married. I met Misa up in Rexburg. I, some of my friends knew some of her friends, and I was, I was with my buddy, and we were in his pickup, and, and it was in the wintertime. I remember it was, it was, geez, when was it? I don't know, December, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, there was snow everywhere, and one of the things that we used to do was uh, we'd just get in our pickups, and we'd go out and find the road with the deepest snow, and you'd just, just plow through the snow. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, snow, you know, coming up over the windshield, and, you know, there's dumb kids, and we all giggle <laughs> and think it's great. Yeah. So that's what that's what I did the, the night I met Misa, we Hey, you want to come with us and we'll go, <laughs> go drive our pickup yeah. we'll pick through the snow. There's nothing exceptional about it. Just right. 
And we didn't necessarily have a connection right away. Mm-hmm. I think we hung out again in the next week or two. And anyways, a couple of years later, we were married. A couple of years later, you <laughs> were married. That's basically it. Just eh, kind of de- eventually developed into something where we got married, huh? Yeah. Well, once we once we started being boyfriend girlfriend. It, I just remember more doing what she told me to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so why, why why did you and why do you do what she tells you to do? <laughs> I just I don't know. I'm pretty easy to like. She 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 took charge, and I'm I'm fine to fall into line. It's like you know, as long as I don't object too much to what I'm being told. When did you realize that? Hey, I kind of like this girl. Oh, geez, it wasn't for probably wasn't until a year after we met. Hmm. After she'd been my girlfriend for six months, <laughs> and you're like, huh, I kind of yeah. like this girl. Yeah, I was just, I was really lazy. Yeah, <laughs> that's know, funny. So. so over the last what four, I think it was about four years ago, right? You had a, well, a potentially life changing, and it was a life changing, lifestyle changing uh, situation with your health. Tell tell me a little bit about that. It was September. I'd been feeling off for a few months. I could. My guts just felt like there was something wrong. And one day I was out at the... I was just working. It was just a normal day. And my guts just started cramping up real bad. And just a lot of pain. And I ignored it for as long as I could. Mm-hmm. But eventually I was I was getting lightheaded. And, and I go home and lay on the couch for a while thinking I just need to lay down for a bit. But it didn't go away. And I was I was bleeding internally. My little tumor started bleeding. And, and it eventually got to where I was passing out and so I and my wife was home at the time and I just mm-hmm. yelled up the stairs and, and she didn't even know anything was wrong at the time and mm-hmm. I just I said he said yeah I think you need to take me to the doctor there's something wrong now I'm sure that's not something that you typically like when you're not feeling good would say so no. what was her reaction when you said that oh she what didn't her thoughts she didn't question me a bit because she she knew that if if I said something like that then there's a problem she just she got on the phone and made arrangements for the the kids to get off the bus, and and she just took me into the she took me in and and if I remember right, I was in the hospital for a couple of nights. They were doing tests and they let me go, and I didn't think anything of it. I just I can't remember the they did a colonoscopy, and I remember the doctor telling me that they cauterized something or they did something to stop some bleeding or okay. something like that, and. and uh, we went home, and I didn't think anything of it and, until, what was I think it was a week later we had an appointment with that same doctor. It's funny, I'm friends with the guy now. We yeah. like to talk all the time. <laughs> but he's the one that uh, you know, sat me down and said, look, buddy, you got, you got cancer, and it's really bad. And so, and it's colon cancer, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it was uh, stage three colon cancer. Mm. How old were you? I was 34. So you're really young. Mm. Yeah. And you're told, you got really bad cancer. What's your reaction? What What did you think at that time? Um, I, I remember, I mean, I was kind of sad, and I was just, you know, I didn't know what, you don't know what to think. I don't right, know. kind of in shock or yeah, whatever. Yeah, like, I was just oh. like, well, I guess we'll see what happens. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty chill guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it got worse. Our next appointment, you know, we did a few tests, and the, the next appointment, I remember him telling, telling me that, Hey, we we think it's in your lungs too, and so uh, mm. you know you better start getting your uh, affairs in order. You wow. know, 
it, it turns out it was just, uh, you know, some kind of, you know, I work in, in my shop. I get a lot of, like, metal dust and particles that I breathe, and it, that's what was, that was triggering the... In your lungs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was good, and so... <laughs> But that, so, so that was good. Okay, so when the initial, you know, hey, you got cancer, it's pretty bad. And you're like, eh, yeah, that kind of sucks, but, you know, we'll see what we do. When he says, you need to get your affairs together, what's your reaction then? Well, it was really weird. And that only lasted for a few days where, you know, they, they cleared it up after mm-hmm. a couple of days. They're like, yeah, yeah, it's, you're probably okay. Or you're not probably okay. You don't you're have, probably not you going to die immediately, right. you know, within the next. But I remember... I got used to the idea really fast. Mm-hmm. It was actually... Used to the idea of my time yeah, is short? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it was actually... Uh, it wasn't like you would think. Mm. Like, at least for me, it wasn't sad. Mm. I mean, it was a little sad. Right. But um, it made me realize that you don't... Maybe this sounds crazy, but you don't realize how much uh, like stress and pressure you put on yourself, just normal day-to-day things. Mm-hmm. Until you get news like that, and all that stuff doesn't matter anymore, mm. like how just free and good you feel. Oh, wow. Like all these things are not super important. Huh? Uh-huh. So what becomes important then? Well, I mean, just, you know, your family, and, and I guess they're at a point like that, you know, you've got your family, but there's just, I guess there just isn't anything that's, you realize that, that there's nothing really that you can do so nothing's mm-hmm. really that important there's just nothing really pressing hmm. and I don't know if I can explain it quite right but it wasn't it, I, I don't remember it being a bad feeling like hmm. maybe for a minute I was kind of sad thinking my kids would you know they wouldn't have their father but but then you realize you know my wife's going to get remarried and it's going to be someone a lot better than me <laughs> <laughs> you know everything's going to be fine with, you know everything's going to be just fine without me around here that's really interesting. So there wasn't a lot of fear. Were there like any regrets or any, hey, I really need to do this before my day comes or um, any bucket list items that you're like, I've got to check that off? No, I didn't really have anything like that. I'm trying to remember. I don't, I don't think I was, I was just so like okay with the idea hmm. that I was just, I was just fine. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know that I would be as calm about that. I hope I know I never have to find out, but it it surprised me the the way I felt after mm. hearing that news. If you go back into your mind and into your life to a month before you got the news of cancer, how would you expect to have reacted? Oh, I I would assume that I would have been worried about getting some guy's tractor fixed on time, you know, cuz I would Right. You know what I'm saying? I would expect mm-hmm. that I would have been all worried about just stupid things that don't, you know, matter that much in the big picture. I would have been mm-hmm. worried about, you know, making money or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's what I would have thought that I would have been worried about if I would have found out that I had cancer. You know, I would have thought I would have been worried about all the wrong things that don't mm-hmm. really matter. Interesting. So what I'm gathering from this is kind of that news helps you see a little bit more about and this is going to sound really weird I think but kind of the nothingness of of your own life huh (laughs) yeah yeah it's pretty much yeah but I mean is that kind of how you look at it 
you know, yeah, I'm, you know, things are good here. I'm having a good time in life, but does it really yeah. matter? Or is that kind of how yeah. you see it? Or Yeah, kind of. That's how it felt. Huh. Um, and, and I'm a guy that, you know, really enjoys life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm a guy that I like to have fun. Right. And even the, the news that I might be dying, it was, I got used to that idea in about two seconds. Hmm. All right, now let's walk through the recovery process here. Okay. T- talk about that that process of, okay, so I've got stage three cancer. It's not in my lungs, but I've got colon cancer, and it's it's not good. Then what happens? Well, luckily, you know, luckily for me, I have a wife that just loves me. And she she was on the phone, and she spent hours just going through and finding the best course of treatment for me. And she got me appointments at Huntsman Cancer. She just kind of took over. Mm. It was, it was, I'll bet it was 30 doctor appointments, mm. you know, with different tests and different things before, you know, we actually started a treatment course. Okay. Um, you know, and then a, a couple visits to Huntsman and then. So, so putting myself in your <laughs> shoes right there, 30 doctor appointments before starting treatment. I envision myself now, if I were to get that news a month from now, that I'd be like, uh, let's get this treatment going right now. I don't think I want to have time to sit around and wait. You're a patient guy. You're a lot more patient than I am. <laughs> but didn't that drive you crazy sometimes? Like, I need yeah. to get something going here. Well, I wasn't in a big hurry because I, you know, I've seen cancer patients before and I wasn't in too big a hurry to go going on that. And apparently mm. my cancer was kind of a slow moving one. Oh, okay. Actually, I remember. <laughs> I re- I do remember a moment when it everything became really re- really real. Mm-hmm. When I was, I remember being pretty sad about it for for a little while. But it wasn't until, like everything just seemed so fake, until I got my. I remember going in and they they put a port under your skin, mm-hmm. kind of up, like collarbone area. Mm-hmm. And and that's where they, you know, that's where they inject the chemo drugs and stuff like that. And I remember going in and I remember getting the port and having that surgery to get the port. And I remember being done with that surgery and I remember still being like pretty upbeat about things. But I remember my first, the very first appointment I had when they started the treatment and I went to the, it was at two different doctor's offices. I went to one doctor's office and I got the, the first round of key type of chemo I did for oh, it was a couple months was uh, I had a pump. I had a like a fanny pack with a right, and pump. every once in a while they pump a little bit of the stuff into yeah. you. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so I it was it was hooked into me all the time. And I remember getting the fanny pack and thinking, oh, this sucks. And I'm like, ah, it's only for a couple months. And then we went to the radiation place, and I remember. You know, and I'd been to this place several times because they like make a mold of your body, and so mm. so they know how to put you into the machine to shoot the radiation at the okay. right spot, so it hits the your so it hits your you know hits the cancer and doesn't hit you know All the other, other important things. Right. I remember the first time I remember walking out of the radiation place, and it hit me pretty hard, mm. and just being like just sad. So it was, it was like an emotional hit. It wasn't because of. Um physical discomfort or no. pain or anything it was just like oh man yeah i was just like oh man i've got 
And, and I knew from the get-go that it was, it was going to be, a, you know, at least a year-long process. Mm. And it, it, it was mostly just me being a baby, <laughs> but I remember it. I remember walking out to the car and getting back in the van, and uh, my wife noticed, like, like my kind of tearing up a little Your bit. Your eyes were sweating a little bit. Yeah, uh-huh. and, and, of course, and of course my wife was, oh, you know, uh-huh. being sarcastic. She right. was making fun of me, and I was just uh-huh. shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Cause, I have, cause I have you the, were really feeling it. That, yeah, that, that yeah. Point, yeah. I, I, have the, I have the perfect wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But I, I think that's the only time I really got emotional about the whole thing so what were your thoughts at that point Did, was it like a hopeless feeling a helpless i mean what was it well you know i had let me say i no it wasn't hopeless i was just sad i didn't want to have to spend a year you know being sick and doing that stuff and, right but you know i i got over it real fast and and we like my i had my family with me the whole time and mm-hmm. i mean i don't know if this is for sure, but I had a lot. I have a you know a few friends around the the ward that came and saw me all the time. Mm. They just came by so, and visited. Yeah, they just came to, by and visited. To lift your spirits yeah. or hang out with you, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah, and that was really nice. Mm. I, I remember there was one of the things was when I was sick. I, and I don't know. This is just me being a baby, but this is one thing I noticed, like. If you weren't friends with me before I got sick, mm-hmm. yeah, I did, your visit doesn't really count. Uh, uh. Like, I, I don't really, it wasn't a time when I was looking to make more friends. So there was, there was people in the ward, and I know they meant good, and it was probably just me being a, like a jerk. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, you know, if someone wanted to come visit and it wasn't someone I knew, it's like, no, I don't want to visit with you. I want someone I know to come visit. Yeah. Did you have some friends that you know previously you thought oh this person would be with me through thick and thin and maybe when you got the news they might have gotten uncomfortable and felt bad like you know i i don't know if i can be around him was there anything like that well i had a couple really good friends that i don't know this this might be weird but i i felt like i felt embarrassed that this was happening to me right and so, outside of our ward, we kept it to ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure. I'm sure you guys knew because, well, because me and Josh, yeah, yeah. and Josh. And, but for the most part, I had good friends that didn't even know until I was done with treatment, like wow. a year later. Wow. So I mostly tried to keep it to myself, unless mm-hmm. unless it was you know a friend in the ward. You know, of course it got you know everyone in the ward knew, but mm-hmm. we I tried to keep it. You're a pretty proud guy. You want to keep it on well, the down low. Whatever, yeah, I, right? you know, when people see you as weak, they might try to take advantage of you, right? <laughs> That's so funny. But that I don't know why. It seems silly thinking back, but I remember feeling that way. That me, so I don't, I don't want anyone to know about this unless they have to know. Like, please tell everyone not to put anything on social media or about this because I'd like this to just. Stay quiet. Right. So one thing, and I'll get back to a little bit on the recovery thing, but I'm, I, I just thought of something. One thing that you shared with me, it was after you had had, I think it was after you had had your last round of treatment, um, and you shared something about how uh, grateful you were that you had 
had the opportunity and the blessing and then took that opportunity to save a lot of money beforehand because that really helped pay for a lot of this stuff. It, it, tell, tell me a little bit about that and why that's important. Most, most of my life isn't, has been more people pushing me to do things mm-hmm. than me actually deciding to do things. Okay. And um, it was probably three years before I got the diagnosis. We, we'd built our own shop. We started our own business. And uh, it, did, it did pretty well. I mean, it didn't do that well the first year, but the second year it did good. And then the third year it did really good. And, and you know, Misa likes to save money. Mm-hmm. I mean, she likes to spend money. But <laughs> she likes to save it, too. And uh, we were just able to put away some money to to get through it. How did that affect your emotional well-being? Now, let's go back. Let's say <clears> that <throat> when you get the news, you're in a place where, honestly, most people are in, where there's maybe a few thousand dollars in savings and you're dependent on your, your check coming in every week. How would that news have affected you if you were in financially in that place, do you think? Well, I don't know. It, it might have been harder. Money wasn't necessarily something I was thinking about at the time. Is it because you weren't too concerned about it at the time? Yeah, it probably was. Like if we were scraping by, it would have been it would have been a lot harder to get that news because because mm-hmm. I know that that uh, a lot of people that get the diagnosis that I get it causes a lot of financial stress and they end up with when they get through cancer they're usually bankrupt. Right. But. Yeah, I didn't. I guess that was one thing I didn't really have to worry about the whole time through the treatment. Was do you think that brought peace to you, but also to your to, to Misa? Oh, I'm I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, no one that was there. I just I didn't even think about it at the time. It didn't mm-hmm. wasn't something that crossed my mind a whole lot. Okay. Well, good. So <laughs> so now let's go back to the recovery thing. You you know okay. you the the port the emotions from from that. But tell me about the, the the process of going through chemo and radiation and all of that that stuff. Okay. How did that affect your body, mind, and soul? <laughs> <laughs> well, my my mind and soul it just it stayed pretty good through the whole thing. I was I was pretty I was happy and just fine through the whole thing. The the one thing that cancer treatments do to you is they make you sleepy, hmm. and I like to sleep, so <laughs> <laughs> it it was fine. I just took a lot of naps and. Yeah, I, I had the port. I did the, the chemo pump for a couple months. And I remember after I got done with the chemo, the chemo pump and the radiation, there was about a month between, you know, being done with radiation and the first chemo to where I had my, my surgery scheduled, the big surgery to remove all the cancer. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, I remember about... Three weeks after I got done with the chemo, I remember just feeling really good. Mm. Like my body felt better than it had in a long time because mm. the radiation and the tumor was, you know, kind of kicked the crap out of the tumor with the radiation. Mm-hmm. And I just, I remember feeling really good, mm. like better than I'd felt in a year, just energy. And, mm-hmm. but it's only for a week. <laughs> And I, I don't know, I remember Misa driving me down to Salt Lake and we stayed with um, some family there. And I remember we had a, there was a meal. Everyone ate a really crappy meal because mm. I couldn't eat. Like yeah. all the family was together and everyone right. just kind of ate. just ate yucky like, food. You know, some crappy sandwich or whatever. Because uh-huh. all I could have was like 
broth or something, <laughs> if I remember right. But I remember Misa's cousin's husband. I was good friends with him. He gave me a blessing. You know, I felt really good about things. I went mm-hmm. to the surgery just thinking everything, you know, was going to be just fine. And and it, it was pretty much. I remember after the surgery waking up and just... Horrible pain. Mm. So in that surgery, they I'm I'm assuming they removed some yeah they intestines, re- some stuff. What they what, removed? What? It was like 18 inches of my large large intestine that okay. they removed, and they you know they have to reroute things. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the reason I still have trouble today because my my guts aren't in the places where they should be. And mm. So you wake up in horrible pain. Yes, I woke up and just and it, but it wasn't. The pain I was in wasn't from the surgery. It was my back. Really? <laughs> yeah, because like, I'd been having not really back problems, but I have to lay a certain way uh-huh. or my back hurts. Okay. And I could tell that during the surgery, they did not have me positioned <laughs> where it was best for my back. But I right. woke up and my back was just like, oh. it was really hurting. And, uh-huh. and luckily, I remember I was just, kind of freaking out you know you don't know what's going on you're coming off the drugs and mm-hmm. and i remember misa misa was there and i remember misa saying hey lay him on his side and mm-hmm. i remember the nurses like putting me on my side you know and it kind of took whatever right it's it's gotten better now but i remember the took the pressure off of whatever and mm-hmm. i was and i fell back asleep and and we're okay at that point so mm-hmm. now the surgery, I think you've shared with me in the past, the surgeries, I think you've had two of them, right? Uh, yeah. Were both like as bad or if not worse than like the chemo and radiation stuff. Is that Yeah, the, you... the, the surgery recovery is just painful mm. and long. And you're, I remember being a little frustrated, not, you know, after a couple months and you're not really doing that much better being mm-hmm. frustrated, you know, because I wanted to get back to life and work mm-hmm. and and I could still barely get around the house and but I knew after I woke up and I was in the hospital for a few days and they, the first time they let me eat mm-hmm. they let me eat something and it felt really good. I was eating along and and I threw it up almost immediately. Huh. Um, and I, I remember the the nurses and doctors coming in, and after I'd thrown up, and they were just like, the look on their face, like, oh, that's not normal. That's not good, huh? And, and I ended up having to have another surgery a couple years later because of it. And I was, after that first surgery, I was in just almost constant pain for like two years. My guts mm-hmm. just hurt bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently during the surgery when they'd removed the part of my large intestine, part of my small bowel, it kind of fell down into that spot. Okay. And it got healed up down in there weird. Mm. And so uh, it just didn't let food by. Mm. <laughs> and it would cramp up, and and I was throwing up all the time. Uh. But, yeah, it eventually got so bad that a couple of years later they had to go back in and cut more out. And so they cut more intestine out in mm-hmm. the second time around. Yeah, well, this time, the second time around, they cut out uh, the small intestine. Right. So of your however many feet of intestine that a human typically has, how much shorter are you now in intestine? I don't know. <laughs> a couple feet, maybe. Yeah. I don't know if it's enough. I, I don't notice a difference. Like, mm-hmm. like I, w- I don't know what the differences would be, but I don't. it's not enough to affect my you know nutrition Digestion, or anything nutrition, like that. Okay. 
what have you learned from the last four or five years about life and what life lessons have you taken from that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't work nearly as hard as I used to. I don't work near the hours I used to. Okay. And just because I got used to, to taking naps and just being chill, like, and not being, like, crazy about work. And it's just kind of stuck. And it's been a lot better. I, I make more money than I used to, working a lot less hours somehow. I don't know. You, you don't really understand how? Well, I'm, I'm more productive. You're more... Oh, so like, when you're working, you're working. Yeah. Okay. Before I just work because, you know, I'm supposed to be working. Mm-hmm. Now, when I'm at work, there's a purpose, and I'm sticking to the, you know, I'm not just there to kill the time. And it seems like when I'm at work now, I'm a lot more focused on, you know, finishing the projects. And let's look ahead, fifty years. What words of wisdom, life lessons, whatever, do you want your grandkids, great grandkids, to know about Grandpa Aaron? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Come on, I don't, man. <laughs> no, it's so hard to give advice because the the advice I'd give them, I don't know if it would even, you know, unless they have a personality that's just like mine, it wouldn't, uh-huh. it wouldn't really land or or it wouldn't really serve them. Yeah, it seems like you can give five different people the same piece of advice, and you know they'll all take it and do whatever do they want with it. Yeah, and most of them will throw it away and never yeah. think of it again. Yeah, yeah. it's like. Uh, you know, I could tell one person, you know, hey, you don't don't worry about working too hard. You know, more focus on like doing the right things. And personally, like, oh yeah, he told me not to work hard, so I'm just gonna stay home and play video games today. <laughs> there you go. You know, that's one interpretation it's just, of it. <laughs> or you know, you could give him the advice, you know, hey, work hard. And you know, one one kid might actually work hard, but the rest of them would be like, oh, I don't want to work hard. <laughs> He said I should take it a little bit more easy, so I'm going to do that. Yeah, like you just, yeah. I think the the best advice would be to to tell kids to work hard because that's against what they would naturally do, anyways. Right, right. So you don't want to tell them, you know, hey, just relax and things will happen for you. Do you have any uh, mottos or whatever that you use a lot with your own kids when you're trying to them along? Do you say is there a phrase or a, or a philosophy that you use while? teaching your own kids to do whatever. Basically, it's like, chill out and, and think. Like, use, use your brains. Don't be so emotional. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's, yeah. yeah, that's the biggest thing. It's like, think. Don't just react out of emotion. Well, I, I would think that advice. Actually, that's probably the best advice I could give. <laughs> yeah. So you, you've mentioned several times you're a pretty patient, pretty laid-back guy. But before the cancer, you said, hey, I'm, I'm going to get in there and I'm working and I'm working and I'm working. Mm-hmm. Is that a contradiction, you think? Hey, I grew up this way, but I, I spent a lot of time working before this, this health change in my life. Has something shifted there or is it just a different way of looking at things now? It's a different way of looking at things. Because before, I didn't, I didn't make uh, family a priority like, mm. or, or just even having fun. But now... I make sure that if I'm looking at my, what am I doing today? Mm-hmm. Fun and spending time with my kids is is in that schedule. It's there. Yeah. So, so do you set up a, a like a checklist on the wall? No. Of what's no happening? Just, okay. Just, just mentally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't. I'm not a big planner, or you know, I don't write many things down. Uh huh. But you know, if, if you know, in in the normal day, 
Like, I know that I'm spending an hour with my family, and I'm spending an hour doing something fun that I like to do. Mm-hmm. Just it's going to happen. What is <clears throat> your purpose in life? What do you see as your reason for being around? Uh, well, going through the, the whole cancer thing, the biggest thing that, that helped me, like, with my attitude and just make me feel a lot better about everything is realizing that you know, I'm not that important <laughs> does that make sense because yeah. w- when you think you know before before the cancer i thought i was pretty important and that well, everything i did had you know cosmic but you know once you realize that you're really just you're not that important it's a lot easier to to have a little more relaxed attitude about things huh. and so my you know and my biggest purpose now would just be to teach my children to to grow up to be good and decent people mm. i've always been I don't know, not necessarily charitable. I've always kind of liked to help people mm-hmm. as long as I can pick the people I help. Right, right. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. Like, I'll, I, I'm a guy that stops and helps people on the road. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my biggest purpose in this life is to raise children that, you know, are just good, decent people that are willing to help other people and stuff like that. Because mm-hmm. that might not be their natural tendency. Right. So I'm kind of in a somewhat of a similar place in my life, and I know a lot of people that are where I've come to realize that, hey, I'm not as cool as I thought I was or as I think I am. I'm not as important. The universe doesn't rotate around me. A lot of people I know, though, when they come to that point, kind of become a nihilist. They think, well, what's the purpose now? If, if, If the world keeps spinning without me, why do I even exist? Why should I do anything that matters? How do you try and stay stay away from those types of, I don't know. of things? Well, my experience with that realization was exactly the opposite. Mm. I, I felt a lot more free to do. Like, I realized that, you know, you know if I die, everything's going to keep going and people move on. And Well, the one thing I've noticed, I've, I've noticed one thing. Sorry, this is off topic, yeah. but... But there have been several people in my ward that have died. Mm-hmm. You know, they've gotten cancer young and died, and they're, you know, they're widow. She moves on, and mm-hmm. and maybe I think about them more because of my experience. But I'll, I'll think about that person. I'll be like, I haven't heard that person's name in four years. Wow! Like no one. I mean, not necessarily that they're forgotten, but people right. people move on. And I remember thinking that, yeah, I haven't heard Tony's name in four years. Mm. And I'm like, that's kind of, you know, I just remember thinking that's kind of strange because he was a guy in the ward that everyone liked. He was really respected. Everyone liked him. And just people just don't talk about him anymore. After you're gone, you're, you know, unless you're, you know. Unless you're George Washington or something yeah, like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, or that person's spouse or children, then you're, you get forgotten pretty quickly by the, the people around you. Huh. And that, and to so, you, made it more freeing? Yeah. It was just, there's a lot, lot less pressure to... To try and impress others. <laughs> yeah, like ah. impressing... Yes, you just nailed it. Ah. Yeah, you don't, have to, you, don't, you don't have to give a crap about what other people think of you. So what matters then if, if you aren't trying to impress others? I mean, who are you trying to impress then? Well, I guess just, you know, my, my wife, maybe, maybe my, my closest family members, mm-hmm. you know, keep your small circle. Like teaching them to be good yeah, people Yeah, just teaching them to be good people. Trying to serve others. And... Sally from Relief Society doesn't think I'm nice. <laughs> Who gives a crap? <laughs> That's great.
great. I really, <laughs> I like that angle. I mean, I've heard, I've heard people say that before. I don't care what other people think about me, but I've well, never. Those, those are it, always the people that care the most. Yeah, I think you're right, but I like the way that you've gone into mm-hmm. it. It's basically the same saying. Yeah, you know, I don't care what others think of me, but it's <clears> from a different perspective where, you know, what matters is it's closer to me. Yeah. Rather than what these peripheral people mm-hmm. think, that, that doesn't matter. Yeah, like that's really cool. You know, just, just random people that I that that I know don't know me personally. If they think I'm a drunk still from the story they heard about me when I was 16. Right. <laughs> <laughs> who cares? Yeah. And and like you said, the people who weren't friends before suddenly showing up at your door, yeah, they had good intentions. Yeah, but yeah the, those are the people that, that it doesn't matter what they think. Yeah, right? those are the people that if I'm like, you know what, I don't really want to talk to you today. You know, I don't care if they go <laughs> tell the bishop that I was mean to them. <laughs> yeah, very cool. <laughs> Tell me about a crazy experience you've had on the water, whether it's on a boat, on, on a jet the water? ski, swimming, something like that. Just some crazy water story. I don't have anything that crazy on the water. No, I, I spend a lot of time on the water. Nothing that crazy. Like I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, serious about safety. Like when you're on the water, it's it's real, huh? Yeah, it's real. Like. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get knocked out and fall off your fall off your jet ski and there's a good chance you're gonna die. So yeah. I don't really have anything too crazy on the water. How about another crazy story on land or, or something uh, else that's super crazy that you wanna share with your posterity and me? <laughs> I don't I haven't like like I said before, my life's pretty dull. I I don't think I've had anything life-threatening other than the illnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I'm always pretty conscious. And I know a lot of people are and still get hurt and stuff, but I try to make safety a priority. Okay. Like, if, if, you're in my, if you ever come to my shop, I'm wearing safety glasses most of the time because mm. I don't want to ever be blind. <laughs> that would be worse than anything else, huh? Yeah, yeah I'm just, <laughs> All right, so now back to the words of wisdom. Okay. What words of wisdom do you have for me and for anybody else from your own life experiences that maybe you haven't already shared already? Well, be sure to treat the people closest to you the way that... Uh, treat them a- a- appropriate to the amount mm-hmm. of influence and, and control they have over your life. Don't be worried about impressing people either online or people that don't really matter to you. Make sure that the, the people that get your attention are... Or the people that deserve it. Hmm. I like it. Does that make any sense? That makes sense. Okay. It, I think when you tie it into everything else that led up to it, that makes a lot of sense. So. Okay. Anything <laughs> else? No. No, All nothing right. else. That's, that was fun, man. It. Thanks. <laughs> that was fun. There it is. Think. Don't just react. That conversation with Aaron Shepard was a good one. I really enjoyed it, and I'm grateful to him and to you for the opportunity to learn from him and to be able to share that with you. Now it's time for another story written by my grandfather, Clyde Taylor Higginson. In their own words, sit back and enjoy this. It was written in 1998 about an old experience he had while doing some hunting and some scouting for some hunters. This one's called Mary Kiss Moose in 1998. Here, take this one, shouts Sharon Dayton. She'll pack you all day and then some. Sharon Dayton's hunting camp 
lay in a beautiful area 20 miles east of Cokeville, Wyoming, and he had asked me to scour out the canyons and hills for his trophy hunting party of six elk hunters from California, fondly called prune pickers. This beautiful little sorrel mare that Sharon let me saddle was about a thousand pounds, handled very well, and I'd like to have had her as a bulldog and horse in my rodeo days. Just the right size and temperament. After chasing a few critters out of the hills and dales to the southeast of camp and finding no good trophy-looking elk, we decided to go northeast of camp into the in the afternoon. Sharon and I got up high into the snow and finally chased a nice six-point elk right into these prune pickers' laps, and they promptly dispatched him. The packers gleefully loaded him on their pack horses and headed him for cold storage locker and the taxidermist. Doesn't anyone in camp have a moose license, I asked. We've seen quite a few, but no bulls with any notable racks. No hunters have a license for moose, answered Sharon. So just pass them by. Curiously, I seem to be looking for a good rack on these on those moose, but by mid-afternoon none of any size had appeared. Then, after chasing another fine trophy into the trap, we crossed a big clearing above a creek. There, munching on the strong mountain meadow grass, was the biggest moose I had ever seen. Wow, look at the rack on that beast, Jern. He must have drifted down from Alaska. As he lifted his head and spotted us on our horses 200 yards away, he took a few weird steps, limping ones. Hey, his left front knee's bent. That gives him that peculiar gait up and down, up and down. But we've got to run this bunch of elk out of this canyon to the northeast for my hunters, Sharon hollers. So off we ride to a beautiful spot, teeming with elk, with me figuring to get a closer look at that magnificent moose on the way back to camp. There goes a good one. Boom, boom. Down comes another fair to Midland trophy elk we had chased into the lucky hunter's ambush. You can head back to camp now, Clyde, pipes up Sharon. I'll stay and help the packers. Fine. This little mare seems to be holding up better than I am. See you in camp, says I. Quickly, we scurried back to that big clearing on the ridge that held the biggest moose just one hour ago. Shucks, not a critter in sight. I'll water this tired little mare down in that creek that's on the way to camp. Maybe that big black devil will be around the water, I pondered as we angled off the hill. The creek was 10 to 12 feet wide with banks about 4 feet high. Three big pine trees lay across the stream just 20 feet below me where I watered that tired little mare... As she was slurping up the water, I happened to look at a stretch of young, quaking aspen trees just 30 yards directly in front of me. There, looking out of their fringe, was a black, familiar face, crested with that Alaska-sized palms and long, long tines. Gotta get a closer look so I can give a true report, my alleged mind moles and ponders. He won't charge with a crippled front leg anyhow. So I edged my mount over slightly to a game trail crossing the creek, and slowly walked toward old Limpy the moose. Wow, what wide palms and long tines. Then, at about 15 yards from him, he started a weird procedure, running his tongue out and back in his mouth in quick successions, and shaking that big old head. My mind interpreted, charge! And that time, it was right. That little mare sensed the same thing as she swapped ends and lit her running for that crick as that black monster charged like a freight train. That crippled knee didn't seem to deter him or slow him down a bit. I just had time to grab the horn of my saddle for the super jump that that magnificent mare was about to attempt to cross that crick. 
With my beady calculating eyes, I measured the distance to those downed pine trees lying to the left just in case she landed bad and crumpled. Then, with a hasty look to the rear, I alarmingly noted old Limpy just five feet behind that little straining mare with his head lowered for his big thrust and throw. Then a miracle happened. That mare arched with a mighty leap over the stream. I was glad I could ride broncs and bulls, as that great leap would have probably upset a lot of riders. But that great little mare reached the far bank of the creek and didn't crumple or fall. An amazing feat. Furthermore, old Limpy had proved his point. The territory on the east side of the creek was still his. Needless to say, that fine athletic little mare got an extra helping of oats that night at camp. Early the next morning, Sharon and I came across our hunter's glass in a moose climbing up a long ridge to the northwest. I didn't need field glasses to know that one. Up and down, up and down. Old Limpy, a-headin' for his winter range. What's best was, this old dad was not dangling from his tines. Mm-hmm.